Welcome to Unite Immigrant Families. I'm Rosemary Vega, an immigration attorney with over 20 years of experience uniting and keeping families together. If you are looking for immigration information, stick around and listen to me and my fellow immigration attorneys as we discuss what's new and debunk myths. Please note, this is not legal advice and no legal advice will be given on this podcast. Hi, welcome to Unite Immigrant Families podcast. I'm very excited as this is our inaugural episode. I am your host, Rosemary Vega. I am an attorney, an immigration attorney here in Houston, Texas, and I would love to welcome my fellow immigration attorney and friend, Elizabeth Mendoza. Hi, Liz. How are you today? I'm fine. Hi, Rosemary. How are you? I'm great. Today, we're going to talk about consular processing during COVID. Got it. So, Liz, my understanding is the consulates have been closed throughout all of during the pandemic. Yes, the consulates and embassies uh, were closed as of mid-March 2020 due to the pandemic. And I've heard recently that some of them have uh, maybe reopened. Yes, Um, they slowly started reopening uh, right around the beginning of the year. So it's been a kind of a soft reopening worldwide for our embassies and consulates. Great. And have you had any luck with getting any of your cases? Yes. Yes, actually, I did. Um, I had a client who had an interview at the American consulate in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. And it was a case where um, my client's son was about to turn um, 18. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that means that if he didn't get an interview quick, he would age out, right? Right. Um, We were trying uh, our best to make sure that his interview would occur before he turned 18. His mother is an American citizen. So if we could get that interview before he turned 18, then he would be able to apply for citizenship immediately through his mom after the interview. So um, were you lucky? We were. We were able to get him scheduled for an interview um, at about a good three months before his 18th birthday. So he had his interview in February of this year. And how hard was it to get that interview scheduled? Interestingly, it wasn't that difficult. Um, I think I did a total of maybe two inquiries um, that I submitted via email uh, to the consulate letting them know the situation with my client's case and that we really needed to get him interviewed before he turned 18 and they took care of it. Wow. Okay. Yes. So they were very, very, very very responsive. They were very responsive and it was a relief. Uh, We really weren't sure how this was going to play out given that it, it, it was still a pandemic at the time, but the government was very responsive and we were able to get him scheduled and uh, everything worked out well. Okay, great. And was he able to enter the United States, even though this was all during the pandemic? Yes, he was, because the restrictions on entry to the United States, they don't apply to American citizens and permanent residents. And he had become a permanent resident in February. So he was able to pick up his passport with a residency sticker in it and come to the United States. 
Awesome. That is great. So have you heard of any other issues in any other consulates that are um, scheduling appointments? Well, the biggest issue seems to be just the delay, the delay in getting scheduled. So it's just this worldwide systemic problem that so many people are facing. Yeah. Um, I was telling you earlier how I had a someone come in recently from Nigeria. So I know the Nigerian consulate in Lagos, they scheduled someone very recently and luckily they didn't have any issues either. Um, however, I've heard recently from our other colleagues that people have been scheduled and then a week before their interview, they're canceled. Well, I have heard that as well. I would say that during the pandemic, I've had about three or four uh, embassy slash consular appointments. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them was the case that I just described where I was pushing to get the interview done before a certain age cutoff. But the others, uh, it was just very surprising. Um, We got the notice from the government that our clients were scheduled for interviews. We got... Um, one right before last Christmas. Um, we had one um, last week. We had the one in February. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, we had one more this past spring. Uh, and we were really surprised. We were not expecting to get those interviews scheduled. And then just out of the blue, we got the notice. And luckily in those cases, we did not have issues, but I've definitely heard about other people having, having problems. Yeah. And do you think those um, cases that may have gotten scheduled for an interview and then got canceled, I would imagine it's probably due to a COVID incident, but who knows, right? Right, right. And, and curiously, the interviews that I just described, these were not people who had an interview that had been scheduled and then canceled. These are people that we submitted everything and we were just waiting for the interview. And then we got the notice and they left and everything went well in their interviews. Um, But I've definitely heard about issues with people who they were booked for an interview and then it was canceled either by them or the embassy or consulate. And it's, it's been a struggle for them to either rebook or maybe have their paperwork up to date the new interviews. So I've definitely heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. Have you heard anything about the consulates in India or Pakistan? I have not. uh, I have not in particular. No. Okay. Okay. I was just, um, I think I was just reading today on maybe it was a listserv or something. And it seemed, it seems to me that because of a lot of the what's going on with COVID in in and around that area, that it sounds like the consulates are still pretty closed up in that area. Well, my understanding is that the embassy and consular consulate reopenings are kind of like a case by case situation. So if the situation on the ground warrants the embassy or the consulate being able to safely reopen for staff and the public, they will. And if they don't, it's just going to be a further delay. So, right. It's very, very, very frustrating for many people. 
Absolutely. Many people. Absolutely. And I know we were talking earlier, but about the backlog at the National Visa Center and at the embassies and um, the backlog that I was looking at, it looked like it was over 500,000 cases. Right. And so thanks to you, now I know that this visa backlog report exists, which uh, seems to be um, something that the new administration, new presidential administration has made available to the public, which I think is very, very helpful because it helps the public understand what is the situation? What is the backlog? Where are they in the queue? And that's really important because people want to know, okay, how long, how much longer is this going to take? How much longer do I have to wait? Because people have, you know, personal lives that they have to navigate and so many things they have to put in order. And it all revolves around when are they going to get that interview? So now that we can kind of have an idea of how many cases are pending, approximately how long are you going to have to wait? It's very helpful. But yes, it's it's a crazy huge backlog. Yeah. So at 500,000 cases in the backlog, as of, I think, five days ago, I think it said. So that is a lot of cases. And it's important to keep in mind that that number doesn't necessarily reflect all of the cases in the system. Those are just cases that pre-pandemic were told everything in this case is complete. This case is ready for an interview. And then the interview didn't happen because of the pandemic. So that number alone is over half a million. But you still had cases going into the system during the pandemic. So, you know, obviously the numbers even higher of people who right away. Right. So this number is just people whose cases is they're in queue. Their their case is ready for an interview. Correct. They're just in queue for an interview. Correct. They're in line for an interview. Correct. And it looked like from that same page, it looked like they scheduled 30,000 interviews for June. Out of those 30,000, we don't know if all of those will actually happen. That is correct. Because as we know, consulates are canceling or people are canceling. Something's happening. It could be because of COVID. It could be for safety reasons. We don't know. So... Well, I would imagine that the same thing that we see happen up here with government offices having to close because somebody shows up at work sick or has been exposed to COVID, I'm sure the same thing is happening at the consulates and the embassies as well. So that affects operations. Of course. So right. even though it's showing 30,000, you can easily assume that's not happening. I think that's very safe to say. So we're probably looking at a backlog of over a year. I think it's very, very reasonable to say that. Uh, I would feel comfortable telling people that they're looking at about that, that time frame of just waiting to be scheduled for an interview, which is so different from the way it used to be. I mean, you know, back in the day, you would get that notice from the government that your case is complete, everything has been received, you just have to wait for an interview and it would be three or four months. Yeah, usually about three or four months and sometimes even faster depending on the consulate. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so, you know, talking about before, before COVID. The time before COVID. <laughs> what were the issues that we were seeing at the consulate and are they different now? Um, the biggest issue, the most frequent issue that I would see was uh, related to the affidavit of support. And the public charge issues. And a lot of times I would see that in the context of somebody who maybe tried to do the paperwork in their case on their own. Perhaps they went to a notary and either the paperwork was done incorrectly or it was incomplete. And so the person would then go to their interview and would be notified in the interview, this is incorrect or this is incomplete. And it would cause a delay. Yeah, I've, I have also seen that with the affidavit of support. Right. And that, that affidavit of support is so important. It I just, I can't stress that enough. It is, it is. You really have to make sure that you have all the paperwork, all your ducks in a row. Um, it's, it's, it's very important. Yeah. You just really don't want to face a delay because you're missing a W-2 or. Or you need a joint sponsor. Or you, exactly. And Absolutely. if you need a joint sponsor, you need to find that joint sponsor and have all of that paperwork and the affidavit of support done properly. And I think, you know, given that this is such a frequent issue that we see in our consular cases, um, you know, I wish there was just um, more information out there in the community about knowing about this particular component from the very beginning. Like when somebody starts their case, they need to know somewhere in the life of my case, I need to take care of this. So it isn't a surprise or people aren't scrambling to find a joint sponsor. Right, right. Maybe that's another episode in and of itself. Maybe, <laughs> right. What about issues with DACA students or DACA, people who have DACA? Because I, I, I'm used to calling them DACA kids, but a lot of them aren't kids anymore. Right. So I think um, one of the biggest concerns about the DACA people and consular processing is, is it safe for them to go to the interview? Are they going to be told they need a waiver? Are they going to be stuck outside yes. of the United States? And so that is a component of a consular processing case that we as immigration attorneys, we really have to review the history of the case. Sometimes it might even come down to counting days to make sure that um, our DACA client is going to be uh, able to go and come back. Yeah. Not be stuck outside of the country. I, I FOIA, and that's the Freedom of Information Act, I get a copy of their immigration file before I file anything because I don't know what's in their background. And if there's something there, right. that could affect them coming back. Right. I think that is the best practice and the most prudent thing to do. Um, you definitely need to see the record to see, is there any information that differs from what was given to you for the consular part of the case? Um, nobody wants surprises in the day of the interview that there's a criminal record or there's some kind of negative immigration history that is really going to maybe torpedo. The or, case. or they left at some point and came back and right. they don't they didn't know about it or they forgot to tell you. 
Right. Um, so that's very, very, very important. And, yeah. you know, something else that I've noticed is with the DACA people, since so many of them, you know, by definition came to the country when they were young, sometimes they don't have all the information about their entry because they were kids when they came here. So a lot of times it's important to tell your client, your DACA client, you need to talk to mom, you need to talk to dad, you need to talk to grandma or the aunt or the uncle who brought you over here may have more information than your actual client about how he entered, when he entered. If he, if mom, you know, maybe took him back to the country and then they returned and all of a sudden you're dealing with multiple entries, that could be a problem for your client. Yeah, that could be a so big, big, big problem. So, yeah. and the dates on those multiple entries are very important. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so sometimes in situations like this, I have to have the DACA client loop mom or dad into the consult. And, you know, sometimes it's hard for them because we're talking about experiences or events that happened a long time ago, but it's just really, really important to get as much uh, precise information as possible. So FOIAing is so important. And then just trying to get all the data about the immigration history of the client before you start a consular case. It's just really important. It's so important because you don't want your client to get stuck. That is correct. Yeah. Yeah. What about any issues with the medical? Because they have to take the med get the medical done in the, you know, right before the consulate interview in that home country. So it's so important. And, you know, I have a war story to tell about this particular um facet of a consular case, um, had a client several years ago who um, seemed to have a nice clean case. Everything had gone well, everything had been approved, the client had been prepped for the interview. Um, and I told the client, you know, please call me as soon as you can after the interview, because obviously I wanna know how everything went and I won't be with you because lawyers are not allowed to enter the interview, as you know. So the day of the interview, we got a call from the spouse pretty agitated that things had not gone well in the interview and which was really surprising because it had been a nice clean case. So I told the spouse, well, whatever paperwork your spouse, your immigrant spouse was given, you know, you need to get it. You need to give it to me as soon as possible and tell your spouse, my client, give me a call as soon as possible. So long story short, uh, the immigrant spouse had lied about some pretty serious health issues that he had. And it came out in the medical exam. Oh my. And so it was kind of like this atomic bomb, you know, just exploding in the interview. Um, and it was just really hard for the family. This, the American spouse had no idea about some of these health issues. And um, the client wound up being in his country for several months until he was able to address all this medical stuff. And eventually things were taken care of and he was able to get his residency in return. But the American spouse and I did not know about these health issues. And when I discussed with my immigrant client, you know, what happened? I mean, we covered this in the prep for your interview and he was just too embarrassed. Yeah. To go over some of these issues and it just wound up causing a 
you know, a delay of months for him being in country. And it caused a lot of hardship for his spouse who was up here who thought he would come back maybe in a week or two. And it wound up being like three or four months. In those instances, you know, we all know that it's very important for our clients to tell us everything. Right. You know, I, I tell my clients, we're going to be, I need to know absolutely everything about you and your family. So I'm going to be part of your family for this whole process. Um, and I know some things can be very embarrassing for, for people, but it's a lot worse if they don't tell us. And like your client who got stuck for some months, how did he, how was he able to come back? Did he have to get another interview? Well, he had to get treatment for his condition and then schedule another medical exam, which he then was able to successfully pass, um, for lack of a better word. Um, and then we were able to contact the embassy through its contact information and say that he was ready to be re-interviewed. Um, and it really didn't wind up being another interview, rather just... Um, I guess a review of the medical exam, the new medical exam. And then he was told when he could pick up his passport that had his residency sticker in it. So that's kind of how it was handled at his particular embassy. We thought it might be like another, you know, kind of like round two of the interview, but they didn't, they didn't require that. They just, I guess, wanted to receive the new medical exam mm -hmm. and review it. And then they signed off on the case. Great. So great. And have you had any incidents where your clients had trouble with tattoos? I have not. I try really hard to screen for that. Um, I do have one um, war story about something creative that a client of mine did. Um, he had a tattoo on his upper arm. And I remember asking him, hey, what is that tattoo of? And he explained to me that it had a particular religious significance. But I explained to him that, at least for me, that wasn't very clear. So I explained to him that in a lot of American consulates and embassies, tattoos can be an indication of maybe gang activity right. or criminal activity. So I told him, you know, we need to figure out what to do with this uh, because even if you explain, to the doctor in the medical exam, what you're telling me, I really can't control whether you'll be believed. So he wound up getting, I guess, kind of like uh, an additional tattoo on the old tattoo that made it very clear that the tattoo was just religious, like 100% religious. Like if you looked at it, there was no doubt that it was religious and he had no problems. Great. No great. problems with it. So that great. was his creative way of kind of working around that. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't trying to hide anything, rather just trying to make it more obvious. That it was, his intent was a religious tattoo. Right, right. So for those of our listeners who may not know, tattoos can be an obstacle yes. at the U.S. embassies. Yes. And because, as Liz mentioned, it could be viewed as a gang tattoo or criminal activity. And 
if you do have a gang tattoo or it's viewed as criminal activity, there is no waiver for that. And so you're not being, you're not going to be able to come back to the United States. And that could be obviously a big issue because you will not be able to get your legal permanent residency. Right, right. So it's, it's pretty, um, it's, it's a very, very common problem. And, um, you know, more and more, we see people with tattoos, you know, times change and societal social norms change. And maybe, you know, I'm, I'm an old timer. So maybe back in the day when it wasn't as common, it was maybe a little bit more understandable why an embassy or a consulate would kind of frown upon somebody having a tattoo. But now a lot of people have tattoos. And so it's a matter of you know, looking at them and trying to see if there's anything that might be problematic or appear to be negative about the tattoo um, and to try and address that at the very beginning of the case. I know that when I consult with people about a consular case, that's one of the very first things that I ask about. Do you have a tattoo? How many? Where in your body? What are they of? Do you think it would be easy for you to explain to somebody what these are and what they represent. Um, yeah, because it's just no way around it. It's something that's going to come up. Right, right. And just also, just an FYI, there's also something out there called invisible tattoos. I learned this um, when I did a tour of the U.S. consulate in Ciudad Juarez many, many years ago. And I was completely dumbfounded by, I had no clue. Is that, that the wand? Yes. Right. I had no clue. And I learned about this. I asked the medical doctor about all of, you know, um, invisible tattoos and all, all of this. And they explained that, yes, there are invisible tattoos and they do look for invisible tattoos in the medical. Wow. Yes. There so, you go. FYI to everybody out there. Yes. You can't hide them. You <laughs> no, cannot you cannot. Hide them. You cannot right. hide them. So, Liz, I we're going to have a segment on all these podcasts calling Debunking the Myth. So, Liz, on this episode, on all episodes, we're going to have uh, debunking the myth. And for consular processing, it it appears that one of the myths is whether or not people are able to come back, because it appears that a lot of people think that they're not going to be able to come back if they consular process, especially during the time of COVID. Absolutely. So I, I, I see this a lot and I'm sure that you do as well. And I think that's why it's so important for somebody with this type of case to consult with a competent immigration attorney to find out, okay, are you are you eligible to consular process or not? Because if uh, the immigration attorney analyzes your case and sees that, yes, in fact, you are eligible, you meet all the requirements, then you should be successful. Um, um, some people may need a waiver. Some people may need a waiver. And sometimes that waiver can be done here in the United States. And sometimes that can be done here. Absolutely. 
And so that's something that I see a lot. People just have this idea that if they leave, they can never come back. And so it becomes critical to analyze, well, who does that actually apply to? Because there are some people that when you analyze their case, you realize they really are not eligible for a consular case. And there are others who they are. They absolutely are. Of course, the caveat is, and this is something that I'm sure you tell your clients and I tell my clients all the time. Listen, the caveat is we're talking about a clean case. There isn't anything that you're hiding. There isn't anything that you're planning on lying about. Um, you know, you've been upfront. Everything's been disclosed so that everything can be processed as part of the case. So that's something that I see a lot. People who just hear in the street, oh, if you leave, you'll never be able to come back. And it's it's nice when you talk to somebody and you realize, actually, you're eligible for this case. Yeah. And it's great when they come back. It and is. It's they have nice. their green card. It absolutely is. Yep. Well, Liz, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Unite Immigrant Families. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want more information about me or my guest, please email me at uniteimmigrantfamilies at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. I hope you join us on this bi-weekly podcast. No legal advice was provided and none will ever be provided on this podcast.